Have you ever wondered what was going on in North America at the time of ancient Rome? Or wanted to hear about the relationship between Rome and Greece from a true expert in the field? Well, have we got a story and interview for you. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, today's the day, episode one, season two, and we have a lot to share and a lot of cool information from here. How about you take it away, my friend? That is very true, Paul. We're here, and with the start of Season 2, we here at AD History are excited to announce some big changes. Perhaps best of all is that instead of one episode a month, it will now be an episode every two weeks. Every other Saturday, you'll have a new episode of AD History to enjoy. We're able to do this with the help of an editor who's just as much a part of AD History as ourselves, Anna, and even the infamous Odo. How this exciting new change will only be possible with listeners like yourself supporting us financially on Patreon. I'm sure you know what Patreon is, but if you don't, it is a platform in which listeners like yourself can support creators like us financially on a monthly basis, and in return receive extra benefits and rewards for your loyal support. Patreon will be vital for AD history to continue going forward, and if you are in the situation where you're able to support us, then even just... $3 a month will be hugely appreciated. The money we receive from Patreon will go into improving the podcast. For example, our big goal is to hit $200 a month, which will cover our editing costs. And for just your $3 a month, not only do you help the podcast immeasurably, you will also be able to listen to episodes 48 hours early before they release to the general public and be able to listen to our Patreon-exclusive episode, AD History's Best of BC. It's a very unique episode of AD History, where we run down 10 events from the BC era that we feel of huge importance. It's exclusive to patrons, and you can listen to it for just $3. The more you donate on a monthly basis, the more rewards you get. Go check out the Patreon and see for yourself. There'll be a link in the description. Once again, thank you all so much for listening and supporting our first season of AD History. We still have a long way to go. And for the rest of this journey, your help will be needed. We really hope you continue to join us on this journey and, of course, support us on Patreon and become a loyal member of Field Marshal Odo's Adeophyte Army. Check the link in the description if you're on YouTube or over at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast to see how you can support us on Patreon. And speaking of that journey, we have to continue. We had a we had a pit stop of sorts. We stopped for um we stopped for a, a restroom break and a cup of coke. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> the yes, journey we did. Yes, must we did. continue. And Paul, before uh, I carry on this journey in a land we haven't actually covered yet, would you mind giving us the obligatory AD history ground rules? Oh yes, the necessary obligatory now legendary. AD History Podcast Ground Rules. 1. Evaluate events in the context they occurred. 2. Over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. 3. Nothing in history was inevitable. And 4. History and the past is like a different 
country. Mr. Foot, you have the floor. So thank you, Paul. And this is so exciting. We're really kicking AD history season two, this second century, in a really different way. Um, a part of the world we haven't actually got the chance to look into yet, but we're finally here. Paul, we're in your home of America. And this really is your home to some extent. America is a pretty big place, but what I'm covering today really does cover your neck of the woods, in all honesty. Oh, absolutely. This is, let's put it this way, pretty much for the all intents and purposes, this mostly encompasses life east of the major rolling and classic and all Americana Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. So it's finally time for us to explore what was going on in this land that we now call the Americas. And there was plenty going on around here at this time. But what I want to talk about however, is something we now know as the Hopewell tradition, which actually started in around 100 BC, but by 180, things were definitely in full swing. I have read that it was in around 100 AD that the Hopewell tradition reached a modern day Ohio, which I've read described as the epicenter of it all. So now it seems like a great time to finally delve into what was going on in the new world. So the first question you might be asking is, what is the Hopewell tradition? And it's an odd name, Hopewell tradition, because we associate the word tradition with an event. I would say like a traditional event or as an adjective, a traditional. A tradition is normally a single thing we do on a regular basis. And this really wasn't a single thing. It was also known as the Hopewell culture, which is a more fitting name as it was more of a culture than, like I said, a tradition as we see it today. And the Hopewell tradition doesn't refer to just one specific tribe of Native Americans, but rather the Hopewell tradition is a culture we've discovered in the USA, relating to a specific way of life that developed across a huge expanse of the USA, across multiple different tribes of Natives. The Hopewell tradition was primarily across what we now call the Midwest of the USA, However, maps of where evidence of the Hopewell tradition life has been found shows it was in a huge majority of the eastern USA and even up to Canada at points. This was a huge expanse. And of course, these people wouldn't have called themselves Hopewell. This name comes from the name of the landowner Mordecai Hopewell, who owned a huge expanse of land where evidence of these people were first discovered and truly uh, researched. It was on Hopewell's land many significant features of the culture was found, hence why it was named after his land and this Mordecai Hopewell himself. So this is the interesting part of this all. How did people of the Hopewell tradition live? Because we've spent the last year or so looking at how people were living in Europe, but what was going on across the Atlantic? How different was life over there? And from what we know about the Hopewell tradition, they lived in small villages slash hamlets as they are also somewhat known as. And we have evidence of small houses with wattle and daub walls and thatched roofs. They usually resided by waterways for the resources these waterways, rivers and seas could provide. They would of course hunt, fish and gather wild plants and they had tools such as knives and projectile points along with hooks made from obsidian and arles made of bone and not only were they good hunters but they were great artists too hopeful art is very finely crafted often depicting animals or parts of animals their pottery was thinner than those that came before them and their pottery included new shapes like bowls and jars stuff we're so used to that this was new to them and they, with these new designs, these bowls and jars, they could carve designs onto them. They're really quite an artistic 
uh, group of people. And I have no doubt if you Google Hopwell Art, you'll find it online for yourselves. I'm sure we'll even share it on our socials. But what really set the Hopewell tradition apart was their ability to farm. Farming really isn't something we hear about when it comes to Native Americans. It, it, there's that classic image of the hunter-gatherers sort of Native Americans uh, scouring the land, but here we have farmers this far back in time. Hopewell societies would often farm indigenous seeds of wherever they settled. So whatever grew around where they resided, they would just grow more and more of that, as opposed to trying to farm a multitude of things in one place. Obviously, the geography and climate of uh, North America and the USA changes drastically. And I guess these guys wouldn't have had the ability to farm that people in North of North America probably wouldn't be able to farm the stuff that was growing in South North America. As I said, farming isn't usually something we link with these guys. So it was amazing to see it here. And most noticeably, the things the Hopwell people farmed were things like Mayflower, squash and even sunflowers and as tribes focus on farming just one thing or a few things that were native to the area it meant tribes had to trade with one another to get resources out of their reach and this is the most incredible thing about the hope well tradition this meant they set up huge trading networks across north america you know it's interesting that you mentioned that the the economic interconnectedness of the eastern part of North America, what we largely consider to be today the continental United States in this case. And something that was really incredible, it doesn't get talked about a whole lot, but when you had the Europeans coming over in the age of exploration and we began setting up settlements and we began colonizing the new world, something that was pretty astonishing was the fact that these European settlers had a tremendous advantage, which is quite simply that given the fact that there had been people living here for an estimated roughly 11,000 years prior to their arrival, that there was a rudimentary infrastructure for mm. travel that allowed trade, whether it be clearing out of some trees, uh, rudimentary roads, things of that nature, where even though it was certainly far from settled and and not what these new settlers would would want to maintain they would want to develop it further they had a tremendous advantage that these people had been living there and trading with each other for 1500 years at least before they mm. showed up and it allowed them to expand and connect in a way that was far more efficient and far more expedient as opposed to just showing up into some place that was effectively nature at its fullest looking and being potentially ready to be tamed by man. It was really an incredible thing for the guys that showed up here early on and going forward in many ways. You know, Paul, I hadn't actually ever thought about that, but yeah, you're, you're 100% right and with that assessment. And obviously it would have helped them immeasurably. And we have this idea of like, I will talk about this more a bit later on, but like Europe and the Romans inventing all this amazing stuff like roads, like travel, but it happened all the way across the Atlantic without without interference from Europe. You know, these were basic ideas that a lot of people were coming to were, were discovering for themselves around the same time or at somewhat different times, but nevertheless, they're doing it for themselves, and it really is quite impressive. And yeah, it would really have helped out Europeans when they finally reached the Americas because these trade routes were in 
insane and these trade routes were incredible and it goes a long way to explaining why these far-flung tribes had such similar cultures because they were all trading with one another and this trading allowed tribes to have access to a huge variety of things not usually in their grasp. Hopewell culture had access to copper from the Great Lakes, Assyrian from obsidian from the Rocky Mountains and even shells from the Gulf of Mexico. And even shells from the Gulf of Mexico. This is how they were able to create the aforementioned fine art and weapons and tools as people from across the network could acquire the materials. And what I love is we know exactly how they did it, exactly how these trade routes worked. They set up routes all across eastern North America, connecting places like the Great Lakes to Florida, which is a huge amount of time. There's this great quote I love to hear, Paul, and as an American, like you might be able to appreciate this well. It, it, it's about it's comparing America to Britain. I just remembered it here. Mm. In England, in in Britain, three hundred miles is a long journey. Oh yeah, but in America, three hundred years is a long time. It, this is true, especially from the <laughs> European perspective, no doubt. That's mm, just it. Just reminded me of that. Like that's like I can't even fathom going from the Great Lakes. To Florida. I'm sure even in your, like, even today, that's quite the road trip. But imagine it to these guys. Well, I mean, the interstate highway system really changed everything after mm, that, World War II. And you're talking about pre internal combustion engine. You know, mm-hmm, that's the kind mm-hmm. of thing we're talking about. I mean, it, I mean, the, even though we don't know as much about these trade routes and precisely how they operated compared to mm. something that was really well documented, like, say, mm. the Silk Road, which is, happening at the same time on another continent but yeah given the nature of communication and just how rudimentary that was at the time they might as well have been on separate planets mm. but effectively organizing themselves and working in an incredibly similar way and as you said while we aren't 100 percent sure how this uh, these trade routes worked we do have some idea i read some idea of how these uh trade routes work themselves and what I read was that the system was arranged so that goods from across the land would all congregate. Like everyone would put like these sort of central important locations for trading routes. So everyone from around would come into one place. And then at these one at this one place, they would then be sent out to where they needed to go. Or if they weren't sent out, they would be kept at these locations and made into tools. So it really was like a post office and factory rolled into one. And I just found that absolutely incredible. Yeah, it really is. And just stopping and thinking about how incredible it is in regards to their ability to source materials from over a huge amount of North America is truly mind-boggling, especially, like I said, before the steam engine or internal combustion or anything like that. It's remarkably sophisticated. Mm-hmm. And th- th- that's what I took away from this. And the Hopewell tradition shows us just where the Americas were during this period of history. Or if it doesn't show us exactly, it gives us a damn good idea. And while it seem it might seem more primitive when compared to what was happening in Europe at the time, it wasn't anywhere near as primitive as many of us may have thought it might have been. We have this idea, there's this classic idea that when the Europeans quote unquote discovered America, what the people were like living there. But that that's just one of the many misconceptions of the natives, of the Native Americans. We have this image that they were way behind in advancements compared to Europe, which led to Europe claiming the land many years later. But from the art and tools and settlements and trade routes we know about thanks to the Hopewell tradition, we know these natives weren't quite 
the savage people that the past liked to make them out to be. And that's just really what I took away from looking into this. Just where America was at the time is it's somewhat what you come to expect, but not exactly. And it's just fascinating seeing how this landmass was dealing with Europe. When, you know, you think in Europe, we had these massive cities. You know, Rome was in full swing by now. And like these amazing empires and fine, like marble buildings. And compared to what we know of the Hopewell tradition, where it was just sort of small villages and uh, thatched roof uh, huts, that sort of thing, it is it is fascinating, Paul. Do you agree? Especially, I mean, I'd love to know your opinion on this. Is this is this is your stomping ground? It is. So where I grew up, of course, all had what we considered to be today what we call the Native Americans. It, there's no question about it. The town I grew up in, there are a number of sites that are named after the original tribal inhabitants in the area. Very noticeably, for example, like the Pequots or the mm. Mashantuckets, as far as, as far as that area is concerned. But in a lot of ways, we're still very much better trying to understand who these people really were and how they lived. It's very clear that where I grew up and we're living very close to that all told nearby, it's still a very, it still feels like a very old part of the country where you can really sense that history. So the town I grew up in is something like 370 years old. So it's a good deal older than even the country itself. Hmm. But growing up, I definitely remember learning a good deal about the Native Americans who inhabited this portion of the country leading up to and from period of European colonization here. So it's undoubtedly a fact of life, especially if you know what you're looking for, to be sure. So, But the more you learn about it, the more you realize and, and just how impressed you become with how impressively they, for their own purposes, really tamed the North American continent itself and just the specialization because they're definitely like you were talking about agricultural earlier. There are things that you can grow north of the, you know, so-called Mason Dixon line that aren't really great crops south of that, whether you're talking about corn or tobacco or cotton or wheat. And the idea that this was all being traded relatively speaking, in mass over this huge area is really incredible. That, and you can tell a lot about a civilization and how they lived based on their, their mastery of consistent success in regards to refining their agricultural methods. And it also looks like in regards to the agriculture part, I, I think you're going to hit on this a little bit later, mm. but they also seem to have come across the the idea of crop rotation so that you're not consistently growing from the same soil mm. that you give it a season to rest or a half season or whatever yeah. it is so that way you don't end up in a point where the soil no longer is useful to you because you haven't allowed that rotation to occur in a given point of land i think i did read something about that myself and it's just it just shows how advanced they were compared to maybe the common misconception we have of them. 
like I mentioned, farming is just something I never really expect to hear about when in regards to Native Americans. It's not it's not the popular belief. Maybe my image my image of Native Americans is is very shaped by the popular belief. I just found it absolutely fascinating. And though the idea that they knew not to to give the land a rest is very impressive as well. Yeah, there have been more than a few farmers in history who have learned that lesson the hard way. <laughs> yeah. Say yeah. the least. I guess the big question I have with all this, and th this is a huge, huge, huge question, Paul. Um, one, th th there's no definitive answer to this question. Why was civilization in the Americas so different to civilizations in Europe at the time? And different is the word I want to use. Is It, uh, it might be, say, advanced, and I think I mentioned the word advanced. Well, advanced is a relative, is a relative concept. Exactly. Advanced compared to what? You know, what's, what's the standard we're setting here? Exactly. I don't want to use the word. I just want to say different. What? What? Why were Europe at this place of high society and democracy and big temples? Why could Europe and I guess Asia as well do that? Why didn't America have that by this time? I, once again, this is a relative term. What allowed Europe to excel? And like I said, Paul, this is a this is the big loaded question, which has been answered in all ways, shapes, or form. But it's probably finally time we give it a crack. <laughs> Well, in this case, we're talking about something that largely goes into a debate based on our respective analysis of the situation. Mm. And one thing that's undeniable is that, for the most part, at least in terms of Homo sapiens, to be sure, that for the most part, we originate from the African continent, and then we proceed to fan out from there. And depending on who you ask... And I'm really more putting this in terms of Homo sapiens and less so in terms of the Neanderthals or any of our ancestral hominins that precede us. But for the most part, at least in terms of what we consider to be the old world, and in this case, let's be specific to define how we're thinking about it here, or at least how I'm thinking about it in this case, which is these are all areas that are definitively and easily identified as connected by land, which is Africa, Eurasia, Europe, the Indian subcontinent, and East Asia. And depending on the source and depending on the scholar, one of the prevailing beliefs for a lot of people is that, for the most part, a lot of folks that we know today as Native Americans ultimately migrated here about somewhere in the area of, say, like 11,000 years ago, which is, say, the Bering Strait theory, where mm -hmm. you're basically crossing over from eastern Siberia into what we know today as Alaska, and then migrating down through North America into Central America and eventually finding our way into South America. I think one of the biggest things people forget about, and this is, uh, this is an issue of a map, you forget just how close uh, Alaska and Russia are, and maps don't help with that, but by gosh, they are so close. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let, let's call that area I just outlined in terms of the greater Asia, Europe, mm. and Africa, let's, let's call that the old world for all intents and purposes. We have been in what we call the old world in this case a great deal longer, even 11,000 years comparatively is not that long compared to the old world. We're, we're literally talking about hundreds of thousands of years. Mm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but 
for the most part, like I said, even 11,000 years is not that big a, a chunk of time, relatively speaking. It is compared to, you know, the, the roughly 500 or so years since European Age of Exploration and the beginning of colonization of the New World by the old. And like I said, this is speculation. This is just putting on the analysis goggles. <laughs> There's a great deal more time in the old world. And say you take a place like Europe. Europe, compared to, say, North America, is tiny, yeah. much, much smaller by comparison, and in some cases easier to traverse. This lays the land for a great deal. Now, even in 11,000 years, this, that would also include the Egyptian civilization and its various iterations over an extended mm. period of time. It includes the Hellenistic world. It includes what then became the Roman world, China, the Indian subcontinent, all of that. But we're, we're talking about an area of the world where human beings have been in much larger numbers and in connection with each other in many cases for a very significant amount of time and to an extremely high extent. Beyond that, then we really get into the area of, of pure speculation beyond my ability to substantiate. So I, I can't say that I would go much further from there on my end, but I am curious to hear your thoughts. Well, have you ever heard of Guns, Germs and Steel, Paul? The book? The book, yeah. I haven't yes, read it I, myself. I have heard it. Yeah. Yes, I've heard of it. That's kind of... I, I, I haven't read it myself, but I've watched and sort of read abbreviations of it. Something I definitely want to read myself. And I, I'm just interested by a lot of the arguments and thought that book puts across about it. Because it's all about why did Europe quote-unquote excel. Well, give me some examples. I'm curious where you're going with this. So one of the ones I thought was quite interesting is it's all about latitudes and longitudes. Um, Europe and Asia are wider than like the Americas. Yes. And it, it's easier to farm across longitudes because the climate is the same over longitude latitudes. I can't remember which one, which east to west. It's easier to farm east to west than north to south, south because the climate basically stays the same if you're going east to west. That's just how... In many is. cases, yeah there's, yeah, there's more consistency. It's not identical, but it's a pretty yeah. decent rule, yeah. Yeah, and that also helps explain uh, somewhat why Africa as well didn't, like I said, I hate using the terms develop and excel, but why Africa was different to Europe as well, because they're more north to south as opposed to east to west. And that was an idea I just found uh, really interesting because it makes a lot of sense. And I, it's no surprise, Paul, that we're into history and like... For some reason, yeah, there's I've a hot always, take. <laughs> I've always seen like history and geography as opposed. In my school, it was always you did one or the other. You did history or you did geography. It was kind of like West Side Story at my school. That's, that's actually kind of weird because the two are so intimately connected. You can't exactly. have one without the other. Exactly. And that, that's what I'm getting at this. This is like a silly idea I've always had in my head. And my girlfriend's really into geography. I'm into history. So we often have like joking arguments about it. But geography... I go by the idea that history shapes everything, but what shapes history is geography. Without, yeah, it's so vital to everything that happened. Most of the things that happen, why things are where they are, why things happened, it more or less all dates back to where things are on the planet. And geography is just the big factor in all this. Well, something I would even add to that, let's hmm. give a a salient example. We kind of hinted about it in a way in our last two episodes, but let's 
Let's tackle this one real quick. Think about the evolution of the British people based on their geography. Hmm. You effectively have an island people, and they have had a, a pretty good amount of contact with the continent for an extended period of time. I mean, Julius Caesar was not the first European to have a meaningful contact with the various tribes that hmm. composed ancient Britannia. You look at where they go, and we'll use the epoch in our show, from when the, the Romans do invade ancient Britain and the 2,000 years that follow, based on their geography and their as they grow, especially when they become part of the Roman Empire, where you're getting more standard and formalized contact with the continent in a number of ways. But if you reverse engineer the British Empire at its height and the mm. fact that the British were not dominant on land per se, you know, the British, from a military perspective, though always the British Army or whether it be the Royal Marines, whatever the case may be, and even preceding that when you're talking about England and even preceding the United Kingdom itself. But the fact that they're an island nation forces them to become, what I've used in the last couple episodes, the analogy calling them sea creatures, <laughs> that they have to be able to develop and advance their seafaring technology in a way that is completely necessary based very strongly on the reality of their place on the globe and the fact that you live on an island nation, Patrick. Mm. And as this world becomes larger and we begin seeing the early seeds of globalization, one thing that's undeniable is that given the planet in which we live is covered by roughly 70% water and that even today, with advanced forms of transportation, the vast majority of international trade and commerce still happens on the seas. That mm. always meant that in order for you, in the case of Great Britain, meant that in order to take advantage of that, you needed to develop the technology to be able to have that continuous, efficient contact and more to the point, as we begin seeing a, a grander, more connected global scale, it also meant that from a military spam standpoint, from a military standpoint, in terms of grand strategy, if you control the seas militarily, which is to say the ability to promote and most importantly protect your merchant shipping, whether it be in the age of sail or after the advent of the steam engine, it ultimately means, and this is still absolutely 100% true today, that if you can do those two things effectively, you have become a superpower without a doubt whatsoever. It's one of the reasons why the British managed to accumulate so much power and influence on this planet because it was necessary for them to develop and create better means of travel by sea, both economically for merchant shipping, as well as in the military respect. 
And as the world becomes more connected economically, you can also very much dictate terms based on the fact that you have that ability to facilitate that kind of consistent economic contact and the ability to protect it. So 70% of the earth covered by water, if you control that, in reality, you control the world. That's why we have so many of these significant issues today in regards to territorial claims on waters. That's one of the reasons why, if we're you know talking about very briefly a modern issue, why so much <laughs> of the world has issues with uh, the People's Republic of China making claims on the South China Sea, you know, that classic five dot mm. line that they put on the maps now. That's precisely in a very much a surface level, but entirely accurate example of why this is all so important. Getting mm. back to your point and how <laughs> geography dictates all of it. So history and geography, if they're different subjects, it's only by... Uh, a hair of difference mm, yeah. because you can't have one without the other. No. Uh, and just to wrap things up here, Paul, something I didn't really talk about, something I wanted to mention, you mentioned there about the world being more interconnected with one another. And that's something we are fascinated with in AD history here. We love talking about the Romans and the Chinese talking to one another and the cushions talking to the Romans and the cushions talking to the Chinese being their middlemen. And we even see that interconnected world here. The Hopewell tradition was founded on different tribes interconnecting with one another. And this idea that America was just all these independent tribes doing their own thing couldn't be further from the truth. That, that connectivity, that interconnected world we love so much was in full swing and in full effect over in America as well at this, at this time. And that was just something I wanted to mention quickly at the end here. That's something I think that is very, very important. But one thing I can say, looking back at this in summation, well, first off, it's so nice to now to be in my neck of the woods. Even yes, yes. For the first time, you know, it took us to the beginning of season two. Took us 100 years to get here. Uh, well, hey, we got here. <laughs> we got here in time. And when I knew this was coming up on, on the horizon, I thought to myself, I think this is as ironic as it is just based on where I live and where you live, respectively. I thought to myself, I think Patrick's going to choose this. I think this is something <laughs> that is right up his alley and you did not disappoint. And thank you very much, Paul. But Paul, now I have to disappear. I'm sending you away on a special task. You have to do a, uh, I'm sending you on a secret mission to get some intelligence for us, if you will. You've got a very special interview of someone lined up, haven't you? Absolutely. For those who are not familiar, in our next segment, I will be interviewing Ryan Stitt, who is the host of the History of Ancient Greece podcast, where we're going to be talking about the relationship between the Hellenistic world and the Greek city-states and its relationship to Rome, especially in the late Roman Republic period, and the early Roman Empire period. It is 100% a interview you will not want to miss. But before we hand it off to Anna, if you love AD history and you want to help out the show, in addition to donating to us on Patreon like we were talking about before, be sure to rate or review and give it a glowing five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy podcast most, or if you're over on YouTube naturally, like, share, subscribe, and comment 
We love hearing your thoughts, and all of them get read, and we read all of them in great interest and detail, and nothing makes our day than a thoughtful contribution from you. But with that, here is Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at ADHistoryPC and the hashtag ADHistory. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. So we're joined here by Ryan Stitt, host of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. And I'd like to thank you for taking the time and joining us today, Ryan. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'd love to come on and talk about anything ancient history. So going into the 2nd century BC, what was mm-hmm. the general state of the Eastern Mediterranean Basin in question? You know, who were the big players and what were the big issues and conflicts specific to that area at that time? So 2nd century BC going into it, so about 200 BC, so you still had Macedon um, coming out. So coming out of the Second Punic War, uh, where Rome defeated Hannibal and Carthage, or Scipio Africanus, and then you still had Macedon. Um, they tended to, uh, well, they kind of angered the Romans, uh, <laughs> and then you would have the series of Macedonian Wars. They kind of angered them. Uh, they fought it during the Punic Wars as kind of like a different theater, um, and then there was a truce, and then they would fight again, and eventually... Uh, eventually they would be uh, subdued. You still have Carthage around. They get sacked and destroyed. You have the famous, you know, Carthondo de Londa Est leading up to it by uh, Cato um, in 146. Same year, Corinth was sacked. Uh, uh, it was taken over. So, like, for the people who go to Corinth now, that's basically, I mean, there's a 6th century BC temple, Apollo, that's still there, and there's still a few landmarks, but most of that is the Roman city of Corinth that's left. Um, Corinth was rebuilt up later. Um, it was a lot of, a lot of, the, a lot of stuff of Corinth was hauled off back to Rome. Um, you, uh, you still had, uh, you still had the Attila dynasty and, and Asia Minor. Uh, when the, their king died, he like will, willed the empire to the Romans. Um, this comes about in like the late 120s. You still had the Seleucids, uh, Ptolemy, the, the Seleucids, Ptolemy, you know, subdues them. And I'm sorry, you had the Seleucids, you had the Ptolemies. Uh, they're still duking it out over there, fighting over the the, the eastern lands. You still have um, the, you, and then you eventually in the second century had the. the 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 Jew, the famous Jewish revolt, the Hanukkah, of course, the yeah. Hasmoneans, uh, yeah. You, so you still have uh, most you you have those, and then there's a little bit of like uh, one off kingdoms, but those are the major players. But like now, like you still have like you have Mithridates in the pon- in the Pontic Pont yeah in the Pontus as well. I guess he's technically a player, not necessarily because he has power, but just because he's a thorn in Roman's ass. And if I can't swear, <laughs> thorn, no, no, he's a don't thorn worry. In this podcast is deliberately related explicit because history can be pretty darn explicit. <laughs> yeah, he several Romans he he uh, annoys significantly. <laughs> um, Mithridates, I forget which one he is, but the the poison king. I think he's Mithridates the eighth, but don't hold me to that. There's too many Mithridates. Now I'm curious about something, Ryan. 
before we start seeing significant and tangible Roman encroachment into this portion of the Eastern Mediterranean, what is the relationship between the Italian peninsula and the Greco world? Okay, well, so first off, Greece comes into con or sorry, the Romans come into contact with the Greeks through Italy because all of southern Italy and Syracuse, Magna Graecia, as they call it, uh, uh, big Greece, uh, it's all colonized by the Greeks several hundred years later. Syracusans, Greeks, um, you know, the the Romans. So the Roman, I guess, their first real kind of push up against uh, the like the Greeks comes with in the early third century with someone um, kind of ten, uh, sort of, I mean, like down the line related to Alexander and Pyrrhus of Epirus, and well. They didn't like him. <laughs> Needless to say, uh, so um, most so obviously it's very agonistic. Uh, generally speaking, with with certain people, uh, I mean they're still trading. Um, they still are have to, they have to deal with Carthage before they even look east, though, um, because you can't just like start looking further east and not deal with the people in your backyard. Um, of course, and that's actually something Carthage. I'm going to ask you about a little bit later on mm -hmm. is the different theaters mm -hmm. in that war. Mm -hmm. The Carthage, they uh, they're they're fighting over Sicily, just like the Greeks in Carthage fought over Sicily. Um, Syracuse, you know, at some point, at some points is um, allied with Carthage. At some points, they're allied with other Greeks. At some points, they're allied with uh, the Romans. Uh, it's just you know, you know, big Game of Thrones going on. Uh, to see who can take over Sicily. And I said, and then you know. I, I'm sure your listeners are well aware of the uh, Punic Wars, but uh, basically of that's kind of where with uh, Pyrrhus and the Punic Wars and so in the third century, because, you know, in the fourth century, uh, the Romans are still kind of like this when Matt, when when Philip and Alexander, are, you know, are doing their thing and out, they're out there uh, conquering Greece and then conquering Persia. The Romans are still struggling in their, with their with their neighbors, the Samnites. So mm -hmm. they're, they're still a regional power per se. We bring ourselves a little bit ahead here. In terms of the later Roman Republic's designs for this portion of the Greek world, what are their specific interests in creating a, a hegemonic sphere of influence in this portion of the Eastern Mediterranean? What do they have to gain by conquering it? Well, uh, resources, as most conquests are, uh, eventually it eventually ends with Egypt. Egypt's huge granary, money. The 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 Eastern uh, empires slash kingdoms filthy rich, much richer than the Romans at that point. Um, you can you see in like the second century, the Romans start con conquering east or start going east, and that's when you, at least according to Livy and some of the sources, when you start seeing this luxury that gets brought back into Rome and seeps into their society and ruins them. Looking back at it with a moralistic tone, it's not quite true <laughs> i mean it does change a little bit but yeah mm. these east, you have these eastern kingdoms that are just like filthy rich and you see it like you know with antony and uh with augustus like antony and cleopatra are out there just like you know he's just living it up like a king um well at least, and then augustus is pretty quick to like propagandize this he's like ah oh, he's he's corrupt he's being corrupted by a foreign monarch uh, yeah, he's got, he's got to move. He's got to move the capital to Alexandria. Yeah, lux luxuriousness and extravagance, sort of thing. So you you just have like you just have massive amounts of money available from just resources, trade. You have like you know when these when these empires they came in, Persians, um, Egypt. I mean, Egypt's obviously the art, the oldest, but I mean the came in, Persians when they're like 
building it up with Cyrus and Darius. You know, Rome was still a bunch of pig farmers and huts overthrowing monarchs sort of thing. <laughs> like, they, it was very... Um, they were still developing. They they came about later in in, in the uh, the power po- uh, the power politics game. Um, I mean, they came when they came. They came. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. But I mean, like they didn't have quite the wealth early on uh, that some of these did. So you look west, or you look east, and you just you can see that their eyes light up with just the type of resources and stuff. So this question is kind of in two parts because we were talking about the two theaters in the Third Punic War and how the fall of Carthage and how it affects Greece. My first question I'm curious about is, in your estimation, if indeed one even exists, what is the watershed event or watershed date that Rome achieves true hegemony over the geographic area that you defined as Greece relative to our discussion? Mm -hmm. So for the... So for... All intents and purposes, I consider like the Greek world essentially ending, though not really ending, because you still had a Greek identity even in the Roman Empire. So it's not like the Greeks just all of a sudden were absorbed as Romans. Like you are blessed, you are Romans now. You had differing level of uh, citizenship, that sort of thing. You had like a different different people had citizenship. Not everybody. Uh, some people still consider themselves Greek, dual identity, that sort of thing. But for all intents and purposes, like the Greek world is absorbed into the Roman world at Actium in 31 BC. And that to you is truly Um, the watershed moment? Yeah, I mean, or some people also look at Corinth if you're looking at like just the geographical area that we consider modern Greece. But I mean, like, you know, they're Greeks living, they're Greek, it's a Greek controlled city or dynasty that is uh, in Egypt. So, I mean... So that's once Cleopatra commits suicide, uh, Mark Antony is defeated, and Augustus walks in and takes Alexandria, and Egypt basically becomes the breadbasket, basket, uh, his personal province. Now, just as a point of clarification, the Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt, that was the product of the various schisms that occurred following the death of Alexander the Great, correct? Yeah, so Ptolemy, uh, as part of the partition of Babylon in 323, Ptolemy got control of Egypt, um, and there was fighting, but essentially his people and his successors never lost Egypt. Just basically the borders of his... They fought on the borders, but Egypt was never really lost um, by his successors. Uh, Perdiccas invaded Egypt to take to fight him and get Alexander's body back because Ptolemy had stolen the body. And then Perdiccas was defeated, you know, like there was just like, it was just a bunch of game. It was basically very Game of Thrones-esque. People would just die. But the Ptolemies were the stalwart that kind of just didn't really move, per se. I mean, they, um, and, and that's po- and that's probably because of the area they were controlling was Egypt. <laughs> like, uh, you know. Yeah, the tremendous know, amount of wealth that existed there, to be sure. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's other factors, but yeah. The to- I mean, now I say that, and there was quite a bit of infighting in the do- uh, the dynasty. But so, like, and, and Cleopatra, I mean, she fought with her brother slash husband. Um, that yes. happened multiple <laughs> on multiple occasions. The dynasty was n- by no means stable in that sense. But, I mean, they, they, and they, they warred with the Seleucids and, and, and the Macedonians and the, the, uh, the other group. The, 
other northern Greeks and stuff like that, but they never really like lost the heart of that 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 dynasty until they you know lost it to the Romans. <laughs> so let's take a step back here for a moment, Ryan. In this case, 146 BC is pretty important, and I'd feel remiss not to get into that. And I'm curious regarding Roman dominance of the Mediterranean, specifically the fall of Carthage and how it affected the bigger picture and Roman calculations, given that we're also talking about the fall of Macedon around the same time. You were talking earlier about how the fighting in Macedon is effectively a different theater opposite the siege of Carthage in the Third Punic War, of what is effectively one greater conflict. Would you shed some further light on that? So th there's a series of wars with uh, that scholars tend to call like the Romano or the Roman Macedon. Yeah the Roman Macedonian Wars. So you have the first and the second. The third one is the one that ends a couple decades before or a decade before, whatever the exact date is. I'm off the tip of my uh, head right now. Uh, prior to 146, I um, um, you just, you know, the Romans the Romans win. They, they're like, okay, you're going to be kind of like a vassal sort of thing. And then they and then the next king or the current king is like ah oh, no and a few years later they're like or like a decade later like no we're gonna rise up and fight and then the Romans have to come back and swap them and then just repeat and then and <laughs> now after Actium and the Romans having Greece fully within their grasp it seems like the Greeks were treated a little bit differently compared to other non-Romans in the empire as if they had something of a special status in the eyes of the Roman decision makers. I would like you to go into more detail about that. For example, how do the Romans assert control over Greece? You know, sans something like sending a legion to go and beat them over the head. How did they play politics with the Greeks in order to exert control? How did they administrate in Greece? So, as I was mentioning earlier, Augustus, and it's not just in Greece, but in the East in general, Augustus tended to... Um, he encouraged the participation of the local elites in the East to, to, to continue their own traditional local rule. So basically, uh, basically it was a, okay, the locals, uh, it was, it was basically he allowed the locals to rule. The locals wanted influence with their new Roman overlords. So they essentially kind of got on the same path with what he wanted them to do, if that makes sense. Like, like Roman citizenship, you can, you can get, like, you can, the riches of this empire, it wasn't an empire at this point with Augustus. I mean, it, I mean, it was, but it, he wasn't an emperor. Uh, I mean, in name, he wasn't an emperor, but you guys have covered that, yeah. So, yeah, he, they did this in the West. So you see, basically, the historical roles of the polis, the city-states, were basically kept in Greece. Their local governments, the way they ruled, the, the way they were set up. You just had pro you just had the two provinces that just kind of, you know, you know, you pay, pay your taxes, give unto Caesar what is Caesar sort of thing from the Testament. Uh, you know, you know, everything was kosher. Um, the in the West, though, that was a little bit different. Um, whereas you have like these quote unquote uncivilized peoples, like like Gaul, like before Roman rule, their uh, so like uh, their new constitutions were more based off the Roman const, like their local government was more Roman based, um, sort of thing. Civilizing the barbarians, as it were. Yeah, but like in like in Egypt, the locals ruled, and you know, and um. Syria, local government, Antioch, that sort of thing. Like it was just because they've had they had hundreds of years of 
you know, they had a they had a well lubricated system. Why reinvent the wheel if you didn't have to? Just basically make sure that the people in charge were pro Roman. <laughs> no, that makes sure that makes sense to make sure that uh, you have those who control power on a local level on board, and mm-hmm. you could administrate through them. Yeah, and like like the the the, the biggest the best way to think of this is like Herod the Great. Uh, like he was the Roman governor in, in the province. Uh, uh, he was very, very much in. Uh, he was very much pro-Roman, uh, and and stances. You know, like they they would run it through these provincial governors, um, and then the provincial the provincial governors would then run. I forgot to put that. I forgot to mention that. Then the provincial governors would run, make sure that the people in charge, the local, like the local magistrates, were favorable to the governor. It wasn't like Augustus was this picking and choosing people or the, his laters. They weren't picking and choosing all the, the little city government officials. It was more like they were delegating that to the provinces, uh, the governors, the governors in charge of the province. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a naked yeah. despotism by any means. Uh, and you, you you wanted those eastern provinces if you could get them. You Very cushy. You could make a lot of money. You, you, you know, you charge people more taxes. You, you had a quota. You had to pay in taxes and then you would just, you know charge more money and then pocket it. <laughs> now, I'm curious when it comes to Greece in terms of its time formally as part of the empire fully under Rome control. How did they fare and specifically who benefited and who didn't? So, the Greeks definitely uh fared uh they were uh they were da- downtrodden from the civil wars as I was mentioning earlier. Um they economically just declined, um, but they. What a lot of people think of Greece at this point as kind of erroneously, I should say, as like this dead museum of the ancient past, where the Romans would kind of just visit to like see things. Um, but it wasn't exactly they. They the Greeks. The Greece was an active player in at that point what was becoming an ever increasingly global trading world into the Silk Roads and beyond. Greece, Greece was a huge player uh, for the Romans in the in the economy and the trade, and the Greeks flourished underneath that. And they were significantly built up their infrastructure and that stuff and that sort of stuff under Augustus and the Julio Claudians, uh, because, in, like I said, they were decimated. And they, Augustus, you know, put a lot into it to build the uh, build them back up, um, invested resources, rebuilt cities, particularly Corinth, because it, it became the capital of province of Achaea. And Athens kind of, I don't want to say it, uh, it uh, kind of slid into the background, but it, ma- it mainly became the cultural hub um, where it was, it didn't really have the political significance that you would think of Athens in the fourth and fifth century, fifth and fourth centuries. Um, the political significance was at Corinth as the capital and Athens, you know, cultural hub. We'll get, I guess we'll get to it. Like Hadrian, you know, he went, he, he went to Athens. He was a student there. He actually was a magistrate there. He went to learn. He, he was, was called the, the little Greek, wasn't he? Nero, Nero loved it. Yeah. The Greekling. Yeah. Nero. Yeah. Uh, Augustus visited. Um, uh, he was uh, inducted into the Eleusinian mysteries. So, so was Hadrian. Uh, Nero. Didn't Nero make a famous visit there? Yeah. Nero performed at the Olympic games and just, he was this, uh, he was, uh, he he won every contest because you know you weren't, weren't going to make him come into second place. Tell yeah. him he didn't win because <laughs> you weren't going to live. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So Nero, Augustus, uh, Hadrian are the three big em- em- emperors in the 
in like the time period you've covered or are covering right now that are really like latched onto Greece. You have the famous in terms of a culture. You have that the famous saying by uh, Hor- uh, yeah Horace. Um, the, he's a, a, a poet during the Augustus, Augustan age. I'm not going to say the Latin because I, I I don't remember it. But basically, an English translation. It's captive Greece captured her savage conqueror and brought the arts to rustic Latium. Um, so basically, so basically that just means that like Greek art and literature captivated the Romans, particularly the elite, so much. And you know that's actually a very good segue actually to my next question, which is to mm-hmm. say that there were a lot of, from what I understand, there were a lot of differing attitudes regarding Greek culture, especially among the elites. But for the most part, it really did seem to capture the imagination and creativity of the Romans. And I was curious, as far as Greek culture is concerned, why were the Romans in general so attracted to it? What what did they... What, why did they wish to emulate it, in some cases, even assimilate it or adapt it for mm-hmm. their own purposes? I mean, what did they think of figures like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, Homer, you know, just to name some of the, the big swingers in, in Greek culture? And then, of course, there's the whole religion aspect of it. Why were they so drawn to it? I mean, the Romans, the Romans had their own culture. I don't want to say that they didn't have culture. Um but it was different. They're more martial based. Um, I mean, their their chief god is Mars. <laughs> we get martial, <laughs> the god of war. Yeah, I think that says it all. Yeah, doesn't they're, it? they're they're more martial based. Uh, they had they had some early like like they got. I don't want to. How do I phrase this? They got they had early Latin literature. Uh, comedy they they had their own type they had latin stuff i mean but it was heavily greek and etruscan influenced um around the time of polybius you start seeing tragedy writers history writers at that point i'm talking like third century late first century bc or late second century bc i'm sorry late third early second century bc um yeah the epics of homer inspired the Aeneid of Virgil. I'm not really a big fan of the Aeneid. I like Homer better. Um, but yeah, yeah. No, it's pretty much a, a low rent version of the original. <laughs> um, Seneca, the younger, uh, during um, during the time, of, I believe he's during the time of Nero. Um, uh, he wrote using Greek styles, wrote Greek tragedies in Latin, but with styles. Um, uh, you know, some. Some, on the other hand, some Roman nobles regarded the Greeks as backwards and petty, but most embraced Greek literature, philosophy, and and especially the language. Greek language became a favorite of the educated and the elite in Rome, and and that was and at this point, so culture became Greece's main export, and then number two uh, was Greek slaves to teach uh, young Roman male elites and sometimes women this culture as pedagogues. That's really fascinating. So at least this is is what I can tell from what you said. You make it seem like there was definitely for the Romans based on the fact that they were, in your words, such a martial culture, that there was definitely room for inclusion. Yeah, yeah. That there was definitely some things that needed to be rounded out in in Roman culture that Mm -hmm. it seemed for some the the Greeks very aptly provided. That was one of the that was one of the best the better attributes I think of the Romans is they were they were willing to 
kind of they came up against a culture that was different than their own state or different than their own they would take from it what they'd like and then they would just let them you know kind of do what they did as long as you pay your taxes and you weren't just, like you weren't just a nuisance or you were an ally before the during the republic period um, as long as you sent your levies that sort of thing like you you worship a different god you have different cultures that's fine as long as you just do what you have to do not to anger us um or as you have kind of kind of a more xenophobic type uh view from a lot of greek city states um you know very hard to get citizenship in athens then very distinct athenian culture um i mean obviously they're heavily influenced by the east as well um greek culture is hugely influenced by the near east and egypt uh but yeah, it's just it's 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 different. Like, I, I mean, in, in a way, you know, the Romans, you know, their inclusivity, um, and, and well, it's not really. I wouldn't say it's an inclusivity. It's more of a pragmatic approach, um, because you know they weren't necessarily inclusive because it was still a, you know, it was very much an oligarchy still. <laughs> like, we're not talking. It was a pragmatic. Yeah, tolerance. it was a pragmatic tolerance. Yeah. Now you were kind of getting into this a little bit before, and we were talking now, of course, about. This uh, the Roman elites being drawn to this Greek culture. We also see in in this time some definite, very high ranking patronage towards Greece, Greece from very high ranking Romans. Could you go into that a bit? Yeah, yeah. So just kind of finish that off. So C yeah, Caesar began the construction of the Roman Agora. Have you been to Athens? I have not. Okay, so yeah, like so you have the traditional uh, Agora, the Athenian one. That's kind of that's right there on the Acropolis, and then the Roman Agora is kind of later on. Like, it's more of a forum type of thing, uh, Agora Forum, whatever you want to call it. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, Latin Forum. Um, it's kind of a little bit. I think it's further. It's east. I think. Yeah, further east. Um, and it's kind of it's kind of towards the uh, end of the city. Sort of. I mean, obviously, the city expands into modern time. Now it's like completely in the center of mo modern Athens. That city has expanded Im immensely. The 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 the, uh, the urban center, the Astu as it's called, the urban center. Um, the Koro being the countryside. Uh, but yeah, uh, and then Hadrian later has his famous arch that kind of you enter the Greek city to the Roman city sort of thing. It's like that archway between the Roman part of the city. And when I say Roman part of the city, I don't mean like segregated parts of the city. I mean like, you know, just the expanded like districts. Yeah. Yeah. Just like this expanded district that they added on. Um, so, so I guess, so I'll, hold on before we get to Hadrian though, let's, let's go back to Augustus. Yeah, yeah absolutely. By yeah, let's means, go back to, please. Yeah, let's go back Augustus to it. <laughs> is, is a subject that I, I love hearing about. So Augustus, as I have mentioned a few times, really built up Athens and Corinth. Um, he, um, so did Agrippa, uh, you know, as his right hand man, uh, Augustus finished the Roman Agora. The main gate, um, was dedicated to Athena, uh, the gate of Athena, Archegetus, um, the Agrippaea, um, which was built in the center of the ancient Agora of Athens, the the the, the older one, uh, was built by, or not necessarily built like by Agrippa, but funded by Agrippa, overseen by Agrippa. I, I don't, I highly doubt he was out there putting the stones down. Um, <laughs> um, and you can see there if you go there now, you you see a statue. You see, see statues of Hadrian too, because he adds stuff as well. But there there's there's uh, there was a 
an imperial cult uh, of Augustus, like a cult center um, uh, on the Acropolis itself. Uh, they built a temple to Mars in the Agro, which is no longer there. Like they built things up to like kind of, you know, like make it noticeable that this is a different city like this to try and put their Roman stamp on it. Obviously, I mean, obviously they So there was definitely a political calculation to doing this. So, um, so let me backtrack a little bit. So a lot of elite Romans when they were younger go off to Greece on like a like a study abroad sort of thing. Uh, Augustus did a little while Cicero did it. You know, Hadrian went as a student. You're like a sightseeing. You learn, you learn, you learn some governments type of things. It's kind of like a extended holiday study abroad type thing. You know, send them out there as as a, as a youth, improve your Greek, learn your literature, that sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So Hadrian did this. Uh, he went and kind of was a tour, like a student. Hold on a minute. <clears throat> Sorry. Start to cough. Um, uh, let me, yeah, yeah, yeah. He uh, So before, he, I forget the exact date, but when his reign started, but years before his, his uh, reign started, so while Trajan was still the emperor, he uh, basically became a tourist student. He had, this is, I'm assuming this is where he developed his love for Greece. Maybe he had it prior and it like, you know, it kind of burned greater because of that kind of how i did when i studied abroad in greece i enjoyed it and then went there and um you know it's like oh i really love it even more now um but yeah like he eventually earned the nickname uh greculus um the latin word for which is, can be translated as greeklean um he was given he was even given athenian citizenship and was an, was elected as one of the uh archons actually the eponymous archon which is uh, it's a magistrate the eponymous archon is the archon who's um name the calendar year is is or the the year is named after um uh when he was there he also uh, as emperor he uh, i think it was in 124 125 when he uh became emperor whenever whenever he went back to greece and he partaked in the mystical rites of eleusis and and these are in the late autumn um, and he was, he was initiated just as Augustus had. And then he, he started laying out his plans to transform Athens, which was like, at this point, this decaying kind of backwater shell of its former self. Um, I mean, I, as I said, it's still a cultural hub, but it had long been surpassed by Alexandria and Antioch as cultural center, uh, as col as the cultural centers. It was basically the third at that point. And, and Hadrian kind of wanted to refurbish it and you know, bring it back to number one sort of thing. Ma uh, MAGA, make Athens great again sort of thing. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because that that title, the Greekling, for some of the Roman elites was not a compliment. And I'm curious how this affected him politically. I I really don't think he cared a whole lot. I mean, I, obviously, it's a, it's a little of course hard to look into someone's psyche since they especially when they don't leave like their own personal journals or memoirs um but i kind of get the feeling that you know he was pretty secure in um like i don't want to put this he was he so okay we'll, we'll back up a little bit so like he spent not just in Greece, but a lot of time in the provinces. Yeah. And I'm sure you guys are going to go into that or have gone into that when you published. 
Um, the provincials loved the personal attention that they received. Those in Rome were not as, as enthused. They had, this gave them a sense that a growing, I don't know if it's just the Greek lean name or just in general that he was in the provinces so much that, they, that they, had a, they had a growing feeling that Hadrian basically wasn't one of them. He wasn't a true Roman. He loved all the things a usual Roman did. He loved Greek culture. He loved astrology, poetry, you know. Even had he he even open, openly flaunted his relationship with Antonus, uh, the young boy Antonus, and then he even abandoned the clean-shaven face that defined the Roman aristocracy. Uh, that defined the Roman aristocracy, and then he started donning the Greek philosopher beard, well, you know, you know that you see in his busts, the, the beard like Socrates look, except he's not pug-nosed like Socrates. <laughs> well, you know that 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 particular style really caught on with some of his successors. Mm -hmm. And then the Roman, and as, uh, it's funny because the uh, the Roman style really picked on uh, like the, the 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 shaved look, sort of like, no mustache, like clean shaven look, really picked up because you know apparently that that was like emulated after Alexander the Great, who himself was Greek. So, uh, it, yeah, it's just interesting. <laughs> so I I get the feeling like he didn't really care about any of these social taboos. He seemed to be very confident in who he was and you know what he was about. So and 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 larger than that, I, I, it appeared he took like this. His promotion of Greece was sort of his long-term. I don't want to say foreign foreign policy goal, but like his long-term vision for the empire. Like he wanted. He knew that the empire's strength rested on the strength of its provincials catching up to Italy, not just Italy being superior and then you just having everything you know he needed the provinces to catch up um which you know the italians especially the romans were vehemently opposed to because they thought themselves to be exceptional and nobody nobody could touch them sort of thing and he, no they considered themselves mm -hmm. a providential civilization yeah exactly so yeah so uh he you know, was going to bring Athens back, make Athens great again, sort of thing. Um, some, some, most of the famous Athenian or most of the famous Athenian monuments today, um, like some of the most well-preserved and famous are Roman. You have the Temple of Olympian Zeus. I think I think there's about four columns left in it standing. Maybe it's three. I don't know. It was huge. Um, it was built. It was originally built during the sixth century BC by the t Athenian tyrants, the Pisistratids, the family, well, construction started. They never finished it. Um, and, you know, it didn't get... And then he decided... Because it's so massive. Uh, I forget how many columns it was, but it was uh, one of the largest temples in, in, in the Greco-Roman world. Um, it, it's... Uh, you know, they've a lot of columns have fallen over now, but it's huge. Um, the Arch of Hadrian, Hadrian's Library, which is near nearby... Uh, and then you have the theater of Herodes Atticus. Herodes Atticus was a provincial governor uh, who, you know, Roman citizenship. He, you know, he was a rich, he was a rich Greek. Influences in local Athenian politics. He had influences in in Rome. Um, he, you know, the theater's named after him. It's that it's the one right next to the um, to the Acropolis, kind of west of well, not really west. Oh yeah, 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 west of the theater of Dionysus. Um, I've actually seen an Italian opera in there. The acoustics are pretty good. They still do perform plays inside of it uh, in the Roman theater. Now, we've talked a whole lot about how the Greeks have influenced the Romans and the Romans' thoughts on the Greeks. 
what did the Greeks think of the Romans? The Romans thought themselves superior and, you know, the Greeks thought themselves superior as well. So, like, uh, they wanted, so the Greeks, it, it's hard to answer that just because they're just so, even in this period, they're still still disjointed in a sense. Um, like, even, even Hadrian, like, circling back to them, he... Uh, one of the main reasons he loved the cult of Eleus the uh, the Eleusinian mysteries because it was um it was classic uh, it was mystic because of its mysticism and it and it mainly because it united the Greeks for a single purpose um which you, the, the panhellenic that was the panhellenic sanctuaries did that um so on his third trip to Greece i believe it was in 128 ADCE whichever you want to yeah whichever signifier you want to use he tried to get the magistrates at Athens and Sparta to unite politically and create this Pan-Hellenic League because um, he wanted to them to be just as strong as the Italians. Um, the Greeks began to work out the details of this league, but it never really kind of it never it collapsed after his death, and it, it, none of the because basically without him like guiding it, guiding things taking place in Greece and being there and goading them along, it wasn't going to get off the ground. Um, they. It's it'd be interesting to think like if that got off like how things might have you know changed down the road if he, he would have been able to like you know foster a stronger province that may have like revolted later down the road because you know the Greeks are just like the Egyptians there's multiple Egyptian and the Babylonians they're just they're people who don't don't like to be subjugated for long. Um, so <laughs> they, you know, who can blame yeah. them? The, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, and the Greeks are notorious for revolting at at all stages th throughout their their history. Well, you're talking about these great sweeps of civilization, and there's an understandable pride with the accomplishments of the past. I mean, how could there not be? Yeah. So they're, I I'm guessing their tolerance to the Romans was. Okay, things are good. Th this is fine now. Um, and every now and then you get like you know a rabble rouser who will, who will be uh, you know not every. I mean, I'm, I'm and this is generalizing. Obviously, not everyone had a pro uh, Roman stance, just like uh, or an anti Roman stance, just like not just like um, people in Judea uh, to some extent. Some were pro Roman, some were anti Roman. Um, I'm pretty, I'm sure that's how it was in all the provinces, not just in Greece, not just in Judea. Like that was kind of similar, like mindset. Like this is, you know, some this is the people who were in power in Greece under the Romans were fine with the status quo. Those who were not probably well, certainly wanted I think that their makes economy. a lot of sense. <laughs> and the other thing I'm curious about is we we've talked about how Roman patronage and just general investment in Greece affected them and we talk about how greek culture has affected the romans but did the romans affect greek culture at all so so it's kind of it's kind of tricky it's it's tricky because it's it's kind of hard to figure out what exactly is greek culture at this time um because roman culture is essentially greek culture i mean the gods basically you know, this syncretism of gods Jupiter, Jupiter, Zeus, you know, you have this similar worship, um, you know, Virgil has this grand epic trying to, you know, 
pr- promote for reasons other than culture, um, but more like political reasons as well. Yeah, I mean, Augustus uh, commissioned that for some very specific ends. Yeah, it's 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 yeah. I don't really I don't, off the top of my head. I can't really think of specific examples. I know, I know, like Roman, they were they were big. Uh, Patreons or Patreons? No, not Patreons. Sorry, <laughs> we are a product of our time. All of us. <laughs> they, <laughs> they were big patrons of Greek culture, yeah, and of course. Basically, so just to backtrack a little bit, uh, some of the provinces, you know, like 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 Gaul, for example, uh, or Hispania. A lot of the local culture and religion started to die out over time, and the inhabitant because the inhabitants were fully, fully absorbed into Roman cultures. Same, same way with in southern Britain, uh, they were fully, fully. They basically just became Romans. Uh, you still had some vestiges, I imagine, of that the old ways who worshipped the old gods, so to speak. Um, but I, but for all intents and purposes, it wasn't like this dual identity where you were a gallo roman sort of thing but you kind of had but you kind of have that uh dual kind of i'm a greek roman sort of thing i'm I'm a greek whenever i'm doing greek like i'm doing like uh whenever it suits me best i'm and then i'm a roman when that's politically more appropriate um and you see that with of course you see that with uh Jewish identity as well. Uh, identity is something very, very tricky in the ancient world. Uh, like, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a Jew, and then like, oh yeah, I'm definitely a Roman too. <laughs> like, this is like, and I think, yeah, and, and I think for a lot of modern listeners, it's can it's kind of hard because mm-hmm. we're a lot of listeners in this case are are very once again talking about being a product of our time. The concept of the nation state mm-hmm. and creating states on and borders based on ethnic identity. These are all far more modern concepts that don't really play out in the ancient world insofar as I know. I mean, there's some of that, of course, but n- not exactly in the Wilsonian way that we would understand it today. I mean, Rome, there, are neighbor- there were neighborhoods in Rome where Latin wasn't even the dominant language, just like modern metropolises today. There were, you know, there were, there were Jewish quarters. There were, um, you know, you see... I don't know if you've seen the show HBO Rome when they have the like the, the Jewish uh, part of the series. Um there was Jewish quarters, there were Greek quarters, they were, you know, uh, you know, pick pick and choose, whatever. <laughs> like there um there were there were it was a very diverse um empire. Uh, and the major cities were just diverse as major cities are today. I think we could use the term cosmopolitan. Yes, thank you. <laughs> oh, there you go. Closing thoughts. In terms of the role Greece is going to play going forward, I know skipping ahead, AD history, all of that, but I think this is worthwhile. Greece, just in general, especially in the way the Roman Empire develops, and then we're talking centuries down the line here and splits, Greece plays a critical role in what the Roman Empire ultimately becomes mm-hmm. and, and its fate especially when we're talking about the East and we're talking about, for example, the rise of Christianity, things of that mm-hmm. nature. And I want to hear your thoughts on that. So kind of just big picture talking about this. So the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, the Mediterranean, this is by far 
you can argue whether it was actually peaceful because there's still soldiers fighting on the borders type of thing. I, I suppose it is a relative yeah. thing. Yeah, it's a relative term. Um, but this was, generally speaking, the longest period of peace in Greek history. Uh, I mean, like, it's like there's not, yeah, there's not as many, there's not civil wars going on. Uh, I mean, Greece was destro- uh, destroyed in the, in the first century B.C., and Greece became a major crossroads of the maritime trade network empire between Rome and and the Greek speaking. Uh, and we didn't really mention this earlier, but the Greek speaking eastern half of the empire, like Greek with yeah. the Hellenistic period, um, Greek was the main language. It was the lingua fra- franca uh, in the east. Uh, sorry, fra- lingua franca in the east, um, and in parts of Italy, uh, in southern Italy as well. Many, and you have many greek speaking intellectuals in the east would perform would come to rome and perform their works whatever they have be um at some point in their life because that's how you you know you want to be close to the emperor you want to be close to power like galen was from Ale- he was a greek from alexandria it would come um i forget what emperor it was but he came to rome uh he was a doctor um you had the second sophistic uh, movement where Plutarch, Pausanias, you have these Greeks in the Roman Emperor kind of trying to emulate this like new cultural kind of renaissance, harking, a new classical age so, sort of thing. You have the Neoplatonists, you have... Um, uh, yeah, a lot. A lot of our later sources for that I, I that I use for Greek history come from this time period. Now there is a lot of um, there's a lot of problems with using those such later sources. But again, they would have access to sources, libraries, uh, and older sources that we no longer have. So some of some of the stuff you can you can look at and be like, all right, yeah, yeah, Plutarch. This this is interesting. We don't have these anecdotes about. Alcibiades or whoever, um, even though he can be a little more, even though he can be a bit of a moralizing twat at times, um, he does, he does, he does, he does give you interesting information. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, you get the, like Pausanias, you travel like travels throughout the emperor or the empire, or sorry, uh, the imperial period of Rome, second century, late first century, uh, you know, like recording monuments and stuff. We have a massive understanding of certain early history around uh, like local histories of places in Pausanias. I wouldn't recommend taking what he has to say about early Spartan history for anything other than a chuckle and a laugh. But, Mm. um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's this burgeoning, uh, maritime, um, place cultures buzzing in the East. Um, you know, I, I would imagine some Greeks still would have fought in the army. Uh, <laughs> I, I, like they were, there were levies uh, fighting in the army still. Uh, I mean, you know, long we're we're long past the time of like hoplite warfare um, by any means. Um, um, like Roman legions, um, as Christianity, as the Re- Roman East or the Greek East under Rome starts becoming influenced by early Christianity. Um, you know, a lot of the, the New Testament is written in Greek. It was the the language. Uh, well, it was written in Aramaic and then into Greek. Then the Greek. Uh, yeah, later. It, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, the Apostle Paul 
uh, preached in Philippi, Corinth, and that's Athens. Right. He and, did, yes. Um, you know, if you go to Corinth, that's you know one of the tourist guide highlights. Is here is where Paul supposedly stood. I believe he even wrote one of his very yeah. long letters to the Corinthians. Yeah. Uh, and Greece became one of the most highly Christianized areas of the empire. I mean, it's still one of the most highly Christianized areas in the world. At the uh, very ortho- uh, orthodox, we're not going to go that far down. To, you guys, no, might later, no, we don't. Or need you guys to will later in your podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys will get to that later in your podcast. Yes, yes. Roughly when we qualify for social security, <laughs> it became a very early hotbed of Christianity. Obviously, Christianity was became big in the the the, the Middle East as well. Of course, um, it was huge, um, but yeah, it eventually made its way, you know, to up the Balkans in Italy. I mean, I mean, it wasn't not like didn't travel quite like that, obviously, you know. But I mean, like just generally speaking, it just moved west. Obviously, when you have ships and things, people can go on ships and be like, yeah, you can go you can go from like the east to the west and get con- converts. Yeah, it it it's truly amazing how. When it comes down to commerce and economic activity, we're not just trading goods and services, but we're also exchanging ideas in, in major ways. Mm-hmm. This is something Patrick and I have run into quite significantly, especially when you're talking about the Silk Road and the way that Buddhism ultimately found its way into China, of all places, eventually. It's a really fascinating phenomenon, mm-hmm. especially in the ancient world. And when we're talking about traveling by sea, I mean, that is the ancient superhighway. I mean, many ways it still is, but uh, no, it's just, it's fascinating stuff. Well, Ryan, I'd like to thank you very much for your time tonight, and thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it was, it was my pleasure. I'm always down to talk about Hadrian. This is the AD History Podcast. Anyway, I think that brings us to the end of our journey for today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally on Twitter at NameExplainYT, and of course you can find me on my YouTube channel, NameExplain. And for myself, you can find me on my newly minted Twitter account at the handle, at History. Also, take a peek at my reader email submitted Q&A column, the World War II Brain Bucket over on TGNR. We have a link down in the description. If you enjoy AD history and you want to support the show, be sure to leave a glowing five-star review. Or if you're on YouTube, like, share, and subscribe. AD history really does depend on listeners like you leaving reviews and ratings to help support it. Now over to Anna to properly send you guys home. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Yes, thank you for listening. Be well. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash ADHistoryPodcast and Instagram as AD History Podcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick... Thank you for listening to the AD History. 
We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.